to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. All right, welcome back, everybody, to Hotel Bar Sessions. I am Lee Johnson, your host, and I am sitting here with my two favorite co-hosts, Dr. Rick Lee and Dr. Charles Peterson. So in the episode today, we're going to be talking about desire, which perhaps more than any other affect is put to work in so many areas of philosophy. So we're going to be talking about desire for knowledge, desire for bodies, desire for other people, what desire is related to in terms of intentionality or lack or need. And obviously, Rick and Charles will probably be talking about their desire for more time with me. But before we do that, I want to make sure that I get your drink orders and your rants and raves. So we've got our favorite bartender, Noelle, here. Rick, why don't you let her know what you're drinking and what you're ranting and raving about today? So today I'm going to have a Campari spritz, just Campari and whatever sparkling wine you got. It's a simple aperitif, so I'll have a Campari spritz. Today I am ranting about increasing attacks on tenure. So a number of states have either passed or are in the process of passing laws that are going to either eliminate tenure completely or curtail it. And what's interesting about this new attack on tenure is before it used to be couched in terms of, well, you know, these elites, they have job security and they Mm -hmm. could be doing no work and we need to check their work and so on. Now they're just going straight up against academic freedom. And the problem now that everyone sees is that tenure gives us academic freedom and that shit can't stand. Mm. Oh, go ahead. No, I'm just, I'm harumphing. Harumph, harumph, harumph. <laughs> harumph. Because that was the point of tenure, if I'm not mistaken. I'm pretty sure you, you get harumph rights. Yeah, in the post-McCarthy era. <laughs> harumph. I say good day. <laughs> My rave this week, Charles, this is someone who recorded post-1972, the jazz singer D. Alexander. Okay, okay. Mm. D. Alexander is part of the AACM here in Chicago. That's the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians. All of these musicians are doing really interesting work in avant-garde and experimental music. They're opening American jazz up to world influences. And if I could, in particular, she has an album called Songs My Mom Loved. And I just love the idea of that for an album. And she has some great tunes on that album. All right, Charles, what are you drinking and what are you writing and raving about this week? I was hanging out at my local watering hole, the Fev, which I always try to give a shout out to, and celebrating a friend's ascension to full professorship. So shout out to Jennifer Frazier. Congratulations. And I had a wonderful new martini, the VP Martini. Vodka, of course, because what other type of martini is there? The real one. Don't at me, Rick. (laughs) There's the real martini. But with (laughs) elderflower liqueur. Oh, nice. So good. So tasty. So I will be having a VP Martini Noel. My rant this week is what COVID isolation may be doing to our students. I was teaching a class the other night. It's a seminar, so it's two hours and midway through the course. I give students a break, five or 10 minutes to go and take care of their necessaries, get a snack, whatever it is. 
Four or five students got up, left the room to get snacks, use the restroom, drink water. Fantastic. The remaining 90% of the students sat there in absolute silence looking at their phones. Mm. Not a single student spoke to another student. They didn't get up. They didn't stretch. They didn't socialize. They didn't interact with their fellow human beings. And this isn't really a rant. I'm not angry. I'm just saddened by that. I'm not sure if rants allow for sadness, but I was just so saddened. Sad like Pac-Man sad? <laughs> That's right. Sad Pac-Man poor and sad. <laughs> and I just thought, A, clearly this is students having become very comfortable being on their own because of spatial issues around COVID. But also it's what the technology is consciously doing to them. The ability to create your own specific personal entertainment world always at the ready, in your hand, 24-7. And I just thought, oh, my God, this is so tragic. Wait, I, I'm sorry. Could you say that again, Charles? I was on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I know he wasn't on Twitter because he's never That's on right. Twitter. Because I ask him every week to post these podcast episodes on Twitter. <laughs> Jacques, Jacques, liar. Exactly. <laughs> now who's sad, Pac-Man? <laughs> My rave for today is visiting old friends. I have the opportunity yeah. to travel out west to comment on a paper at a conference. And one of my very best friends whom I've known since I was five years old lives in Oakland. And I haven't seen him for a handful of years. And this is a great opportunity to not only attend an academic engagement, to trade ideas with my fellow philosophers, but to see my old friend. So I am mm. definitely raving about seeing old friends. If you get a chance, you should listen to Chris Deva's cover of the song Old Friends. As covered by Rick Lee. <laughs> you know what? Actually, someone suggested me Chris Deva's cover of the Rolling Stones song, Waiting on a Friend. So I'm going to go with that instead. Uh, Lee, what are you writing a rave about? What are you drinking? You guys, I just got back from a trip in the Ozarks, and I feel like I've gotten back to the earth, back to simple life, and so I am just going to have a lager. It doesn't even matter what it is. Whatever she's got on tap, that's just what I want. Simple beer this week. I am raving this week, relatedly, about Americana. actually really love Americana music and I get Americana can be kitschy and sometimes racist <laughs> but there is a kind of adorableness that's maybe not the right word but there's something heartwarming about driving through the country which I haven't done in more than two years now and just seeing stuff on the side of the road that mm. is you know we spent four days in Eureka Springs we rented a cabin in the mountains and on the way there, we just saw so many kind of oddities on the side of the road. I want to give a shout out to what I think was a diner somewhere in the Ozark Mountains in Arkansas that was called the Chat and Scat. I really want to go to the Chat and Scat. I don't know what it is, but I feel like there's got to be good things going on in the Chat and Scat. But it's a life that I cannot imagine. Some of these towns and these farms that we pass, I can't imagine living there. I can't imagine not living in a city, but I really did enjoy the trip and did enjoy sort of seeing all of that. I am ranting this week, however, about the newly introduced Twitter Blue. 
Twitter has introduced a new subscription service, paid subscription service, where, among other things, Twitter Blue users get premium features. And one of those features is the feature that literally everyone that's ever been on Twitter has wanted, which is the ability to edit their tweets. (laughs) And okay, so yeah, all right, everybody's been wanting this. This is a feature that should have been introduced a long time ago. And I want people to have it, but I don't just want the elites to have it. It's not fair to have Twitter and not know who can edit their tweets and who can't edit their tweets. Yeah, so I'm thumbs downing Twitter blue until the workers take over the means of production and everybody gets to edit their tweets. But that's so appropriate, (laughs) isn't it? You know, only the elite can control perceptions of them. Only the elite can control their history. The rest of us, you live with it. You do it, you've done it, it's gone. All right, so Rick, you are in the hot seat today, and I know we're talking about desire, and I desire to hear more about what we're talking about. (laughs) This is going to go on for the entire podcast, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, it's low-hanging fruit. (laughs) And you know what I desire? Low-hanging fruit. Anyhow, we've talked about this before, and you know, in my own work and in the philosophy that I appreciate, I'm not really that invested in or tied to affects and affectivity, but I do find desire to be an incredibly interesting affect. Because, as Lee said earlier, it just seems to be central to so many philosophers' thoughts about so many different things. And even outside of philosophy, it seems to be probably the central motivator of our everyday life and a lot of the things we do, sometimes without thinking, sometimes without knowing. And so desire seems to be a really interesting affect. But also, I think that for a lot of philosophers, it's looked at with a like, they like it, but it's a little suspicious because it gets a little naughty sometimes. And, you know, <laughs> it's a little uncontrollable. It's not easily schematized. Yeah, Lee, that must be really sad for you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I just got owned, as the kids say. (laughs) Let the record show that Dr. Lee M. Johnson just lost her shit. (laughs) It's chaos. Hey, Lee, do you have a trauma center near you? Because you need a burn unit. (laughs) Oh. Rick's on fire. (laughs) You don't want this smoke. (laughs) You don't desire this smoke. This is on the way to becoming Rick Lee's Hotel Bar Sessions, everyone. (laughs) We are witnessing a coup. (laughs) He'll be here all week. Enjoy the (laughs) meal. So I think desire is an important affect. It's one that a lot of philosophers look at with some suspicion. They like it as a kind of motivator or a drive toward things like truth and knowledge and goodness and justice. But once you open up a desire, you can't close that down really easily. And so I want to talk about desire. (laughs) 
right, Rick, I really am super excited about this discussion today. But one thing that I think that maybe we should do right here at the beginning is to explain what an affect is. I've noticed in my classes and just in my conversations with people who are not academics or not philosophers that a lot of people don't know what we're talking about when we say affect. So you describe desire as an affect. What is an affect? What are other affects? Yeah, I think we normally think of the term affect when we're being corrected when we meant to use the word effect and we put affect instead. Right, Um, right. So within philosophy, and particularly in early modern philosophy, so philosophers like Hobbes, Descartes, you find a discussion of those aspects of our, for lack of a better term, mental life which are not produced by us, we're not the originators or creators of it, but we are at least partly passive in these. And so we undergo something, that's the literal meaning of passion, we undergo something and therefore we are affected by something other than ourselves. And so one of the words that they use for what we would call mostly emotions are affects, namely those things that change us in some way and so we are affected by them and those things are called affects, mostly to denote this kind of at least part passivity. I could take desire as an example. I don't generate a desire just out of myself. I desire something. And so the thing that I am desiring is affecting me so that I have this desire and I'm not completely autonomous and the total agent in this process. I do wonder if you think, though, as Spinoza said, that there's almost no difference between appetites and desires, except for that desire is an appetite and a consciousness of the appetite. Right. So we at least know what the appetite is or what it's pursuing, what it's striving towards. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, it is interesting, again, starting in the early modern period, and let me point out that Descartes never would have written his book, The Passions of the Souls, if it weren't for the contributions of Elizabeth of Bohemia. So Mm. she was attacking his overly cognitive and rationalist approach and kept pushing him on this issue of emotion and affect. And as a result of it, he decided he needed to write an account of how affects fit in. That being said, there is, again, especially in the early modern period, a need to find out what are the one or two root affects that all the rest of them are just kind of modifications of. And pleasure and pain is one choice that philosophers normally choose, so that the initial feeling I have or what I am affected by is either a feeling of pleasure or a feeling of pain. And then we could get to appetite. So I desire those things that cause me pleasure. I avoid those things that cause me pain. And then from there, I could get all sorts of things, love and hope and fear and anxiety and sadness. And, you know, so all the affects could then be built off of a modification of some root, usually these opposites, like a positive and a negative, some root set of affects that allow me to generate the rest. And so now to answer your question, finally, Lee, he says an hour later, um, (laughs) I think that one of the reasons why appetite is thought by many philosophers to be so fundamental 
toll is because of its biological baseness. Like, we have to eat, we have to drink, and then maybe from a species level, we have to reproduce. Because of that, you know, it's just really basic biology there that then other affects can be built off of our different ways of taking up that kind of root biology. So, and I'm going to approach this like a four-year-old. What we can say is there's a passivity when we talk about affectations, something external to us motivates us in order to move toward it versus appetites, which are inherent and at the root, biologically initiated. Yes? I would say not quite. I did say like a four-year-old. I did say that. <laughs> but I thought you meant like a smart four-year-old. <laughs> Oh, 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 shit. Just reopen the burn center. Oh, my God. I don't know why suddenly I'm like on Dean Martin's celebrity roast. <laughs> uh, that's all right. I take as good as I give. <laughs> so I wouldn't agree wholeheartedly, Charles, because I think that even our appetites are based on something external to us. My hunger for food, there is something outside of me. And that, at least, is part of what makes my appetite my appetite. In other words, how do we distinguish between the appetite for food and the appetite for drink from the appetite for sex? These are because of the object, and so even an appetite, there's an element of being passive. Just, again, clarification. I have a little bit of a follow-up question. So that seems to me to join appetites and desires together in a way that makes sense. I'm trying to figure out what is the difference between appetites and or desires and other kinds of affects like joy or sadness. So it does seem that an appetite or desire has some kind of, I mean, I hesitate to say intentionality, mm -hmm. but directionality to it. Whereas something like bliss or sadness or whatever might not. So do you think that that being aimed at something, a kind of teleology, I don't know what to call it. It seems like kind of intentionality, kind of teleology, kind of directionality, that that's a necessary part of the structure of desire. This is why I think desire is so interesting, because I think there is a directedness, if not a teleology, a necessary directedness or, or something like a teleology to it. But I think also what philosophers find interesting with both appetite and desire is that it's a kind of compulsion, right? So one might think of Freud's use of the term drive. It's like an engine. It's like an engine for my action my action towards something. And I think a lot of philosophers find it interesting precisely because of this movement toward. I want to emphasize the toward like you did, Lee, and then also the compulsion and movement part of it as well. That's really helpful. So it's not intentional in the sense that I decide to desire cake or a particular person or the sun shining on my face on a spring day, I'm compulsively driven towards that. It can't have the structure of intentionality without being chosen in the way that we normally think about intentionality. I, yeah, I think that's what a lot of philosophers find interesting. Can we say that connecting appetite and desire, that desire is the sharp end of appetite. So my appetite is for food because internally I need this sustenance in order to continue functioning. It's a biological necessity, but my desire for a medium well done steak falls under that. 
But because it's so specific and there are very particular characteristics that I attach to that more than just, oh, this will fill up my belly, then that is something that may be particular to desire and not necessarily just appetite. That's interesting. So this goes back to, I think, Lee's raising of Spinoza earlier, that one way to distinguish between appetite and desire is that in desire, I have appetite, but along with the knowledge of what will satiate that appetite. And so, yeah, I I have an appetite for food, but I have a desire, as you put it, for a steak. And then we can get more complicated, as Lee did. So then add on top of that, like when it comes to, let's say, a person, well, it could even be a thing, but it might be easier to start with a person. I have appetite maybe for sex. I have desire for that person. And then I could add love to that. And love is somehow related to the desire and related to the appetite, but in some ways also markedly different. Yeah, that makes it complicated when we start thinking about the kinds of desires that we have that don't have a biological root in the sense of persisting in one's being. So the fact that we desire things that are dangerous to us, we desire to have, I don't know how to describe this, like we desire to have experiences where our lives might be put in danger, like curiosity, for example. We desire to walk into the unknown. Those sorts of things seem definitely different than appetites like I need to eat, I need to sleep, I need to drink water, etc. But they manifest as compulsive in the same kind of way. Like, I can't help it. I I want to do this. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because nowadays psychologists have an entirely different way of approaching the topic of emotions and affects, including desire. But at least for early modern philosophers, What constitutes an emotion or an affect, and so therefore desire, is in a sense it has a physical component, but it also has a cognitive component, or let's just put it more basic, an element of thought belongs to it as well. Now that element might not be knowledge, it might be something else, imagination or or something like that, but it is both, we might say today, mental and physical. And I think that often the mental part is what allows us to think that the object of our desire is actually helping us physically, when in fact it might be harming us. Hey listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, if you can't catch us at the Hotel Bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their all-fair thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor's abbreviated and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. Now, back to our conversation. So, Lee, that last point 
that you made, I think, shows the reason why desire functions really at the heart of many philosophers' thought. So you could think of the role of Eros in Plato, particularly maybe the symposium. You could think about Aristotle saying all humans desire by nature to know. And so there is a way in which this compulsive this being driven aspect of it, a number of philosophers want to grab onto that to say, okay, well, why don't you just be driven for knowledge or something like that? I'm glad you brought up the symposium. And I know once we started talking about desire, I'm sure that probably the majority of our listeners, their minds automatically went to the question of eros or the erotic, because that's what we most right. attach desire to. Is there a certain inherent concern about that drive, about that energy, about the extreme ways in which desire can affect human functioning and human life among these early philosophers? Yeah, I mean, don't you think, I, I, I don't know, maybe I'm weird in the way I read philosophy in general, but I read a philosopher like Plato and see that there is a kind of anxiety at the heart of his thinking of Eros. And I think you put your finger on it, Charles. I see in Plato a certain anxiety that this is a power that, sure, it's motivating, but it's also slightly dangerous. So he wants to use it for one purpose, but then you got to try to control it. And I find that really interesting in Plato, but he's not alone in this. No, because I was thinking about the scene in the symposium where Alcibiades talks about his attempt to seduce Socrates. It seems that Socrates is being presented as this superior spirit and consciousness because of his ability to resist the desire. Because he doesn't say Alcibiades looks like, you know, three miles of a bad road. He admits that he's a very attractive man. Right? But the ability to say, no, no, I'm on another path. My desire is for something else. And it seems that I think the term I used before was this sort of mortification of the flesh, this degradation mm. of the flesh. But what's interesting is in his relationship with Alcibiades, or as some of my colleagues in classics will say, Alcibiades, <laughs> his relationship with Alcibiades, he doesn't want to deny Eros. He wants to even take Alcibiades' Eros and turn it away from the body toward something else. And you're right that he does this by saying, well, of course it's better for the soul to desire soul-like things and not bodily things. And whenever I read that, I'm like, says who, Socrates? Like, <laughs> <laughs> but I think going back to what I was saying before is that desires are so hard to schematize. And I do think that what we see in the ancient Greek philosophers and definitely persisting throughout the Middle Ages in both Christian and Islamic philosophy is that if we could schematize desires and say what they ought to be pointing to, right. then we can explain a whole lot of things. Right. Then we can say, oh, the problem here is not that you know, you're just driven by your desires and then bad things happen. The problem here is that you've misunderstood what the good is. Right. Like you always are desiring the good and you've just misunderstood what the good is. Right. You're always desiring knowledge. You've just misunderstood what the truth is, etc. So I do think that the impulse to incorporate desires in the search for truth and in the project of becoming a good person and building a good city and being a part of a good community, that all of that is an attempt to schematize these really unruly, mysterious right. drives that even when schematized will still fuck you up. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somehow by, by being put in categories, they're not therefore tamed. 
You know, what's interesting, Lee, is in what you just said, and this goes back to Charles raising Alcibiades, that you talked about desires being put to work in order to build a good city or a good life and so on. And I like that the sort of energy for setting to work and the activity, I think that's why a lot of philosophers look to desire because it's the battery to the energy system, right? It puts Mm -hmm. the energy into the system. But as you were pointing out, like once you say, oh, come on, let's have some desire, it's really hard even when schematized to control that desire. And you just have to look at Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologiae, where you do get a fairly rigorous schematism of various Mm -hmm. kinds of desires. So let's just take what comes to be called concupiscence, you know, so a kind of bodily desire for bodily pleasure. He sees right away, as many philosophers do, that on the one hand, you can't say that's bad. It can't be, as Charles put it earlier, a complete and total mortification of the flesh, because otherwise the species wouldn't reproduce itself. And so then the problem is, if that concupiscence gets out of hand, then what do we do? Or, to go to another sin that Aquinas doesn't like, gets into hand. Um, <laughs> but he'll um, be here all week. Try the veal. Enjoy the buffet. Try, but, but don't try the veal that way. <laughs> so there's a moment where, as I think both of you are pointing out, there's a, an attempt by philosophers to say, okay, wait, no, there's a good that's being aimed at here, and you made a mistake. You either put the wrong kind of desire to work for that good, or you put your desire to work for something that isn't a good. Yeah, and I think that what we see when these schema get folded into religions is that the explanation of the mistakes often becomes a filter through which we misunderstand a lot of our desires. That's where I think we start moving more aggressively towards what Charles was describing earlier as a kind of mortification of the body and a mortification of the flesh. But also it's necessary for the whole architecture of sin and repentance and redemption and those sorts of things. You know, it's Paul, right? It's like, why do I do Mm. the things that I know I should not do? Why do I choose evil when I know the good? Well, I mean, I have to know that it's a mistake that I've made. Because the evil feels so good. (laughs) Don't it, though? (laughs) When you say religion, Lee, in my mind, you're saying these monotheistic traditions. Yeah, the Abrahamic traditions. Yeah, the Abrahamic traditions are having problems with this, have concern about this, and then you align those to this idealism coming out of Plato, and you have the rationality and superiority of that, and desire undermines that. So I'm always very curious about the ways in which other traditions, other spiritual systems, non-Abrahamic, have actually incorporated desire and actually channeled this. I'm thinking about uh, systems that have fertility cults and the ways in which those have been woven into and seen as a really necessary, literally a vital force in the sustaining and expansion of these systems and the societies attached to them. Egyptian religion, for example, for periods of its history, even though they didn't have straight up fertility cults, but desire was incorporated. And here, I think we're still talking about fleshly desire. And it is interesting why in certain religious systems and structures and traditions, why the bodily desires don't get subordinated to, as you put it just a moment ago, Charles, subordinated to reason, for example, which you get in Plato's idealism. And I agree with you. I would say Plato has an idealism 
wisdom. And I think bodily desires get subordinated to rational capacities in Plato. Is there then another way of regulating desire? Because on the other hand, a society can't thrive if everyone's getting busy with it, you know, all the time. Really? Yeah. I mean, yeah, let's try it. Yeah. Have we really, let's, let's just give it have a we shot. Really thrown in with that? I mean, we have not tested that at all. I don't think that we really committed to that. Because yeah. at some point, someone's going to get hungry and someone's going to be like, I got to make a sandwich. Right. <laughs> and the rest of us are going to be like, why you're up? Could you, right. could you exactly. make, <laughs> make a few? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, the division of labor is reintroduced and we're right. back right. to capitalism. Right. Here we go. By the way, as funny as this is, I think it's also not false. Yeah, no, I don't think it is no. either. Yeah. That in a sense, the regulation of desire becomes an economy. And yeah. out of the economy, then you have a social structure built on the basis of that economy. And yeah, so as funny as it is, it's also true. <laughs> Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email a audio clip, keep it under two minutes please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. It seems to me that if we're looking at how various philosophers have engaged questions of desire, I think we have to take some time and look at Marx and think about the question of the stimulation and the creation of desire within mm -hmm. the context of capitalist societies, because most of the conversation we've been having have been under the assumption that desires and appetites are completely organic, completely natural, completely inherent to human functioning. But when we begin to talk about the ways in which capitalist structures, the creation of certain models of production and consumption, and certainly the need for overconsumption to drive certain engines of production and capital accruement, we have to talk about the ways in which people get manipulated and get sold literally, what their desires are. And I always think about this great line from George Clinton, right? Mind your wants because somebody wants your mind. And whenever we mm. talk about desire and consumerism, that always comes to fore for me. The kind of discussion of desire that we see blossoming in the 20th century, but with its roots deep in the 19th century, but especially in people like Judith Butler yeah. and Foucault, where we, we see discussions of desires as constitutive of subjects. That seems to resonate with me a lot truer than the ancient discussions of desire. Yeah, I agree. So there's been a kind of liberation of desire, I would put it, in philosophers like Foucault and Judith Butler. And I think you're right that the human as desiring being has really become liberated in the 20th century. But I think that that's not antithetical to Charles' point, because in a sense, I mean, there is this phrase, the libidinal economy, right? So that mm -hmm. there is a way in which desire is like an economy, it's produced, and then there's a circulation of it, and there might even be a consumption of it. Those are maybe the three main points of an economy. And I think, to go back to the way, Lee, you opened this whole episode, 
I think this is why a lot of Marxists find Spinoza to be really interesting, starting with Louis Althusser and then a number of people who were students of his and, and influenced by him, precisely because if there is this and I'll say the general term again, this cognitive component, that doesn't mean knowledge, that doesn't mean it's truth related, but if there's a cognitive component along with the body component, that means that there is a space in there for that cognitive component to be a little bit messed with, and therefore desires can be manufactured. I thought you were going to use the word fondled. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me let me fondle that idea for a second because I think that one. I do think that one thing that we see in late stage techno capitalism is this capitalist machinery that is working very hard to turn desires back into appetites. Mm. So, for example, the way that social media platforms try to motivate our desire to stay on them are really about giving us these notification sounds and colors that are just about basic biological operations, like what's going to release, you know, a certain amount of, uh, what is it Endorphins. Endorphins. Endorphins, yeah, in your brain. And so in that sense, picking back up the Spinoza distinction between an appetite and a desire, the appetite and the consciousness of the appetite, I think that one of the things that is worrisome about the stage of capitalism that we're in right now, especially as in fused with advanced technologies as it is, is that these desires are being turned back into appetites, which is interesting because it, at the same time, makes us less cognizant and aware and reflective about our desires and also more like non-human animals and or robots. I think, Lee, the notion of desires being turned back into appetites is really, really interesting because... And by the way, if I'm not mistaken, Freud's nephew basically invented the advertising yeah. industry coming off of Freud's own ideas. <laughs> Le shock. <laughs> That's not Edward Bernays, is it? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I read his book, Propaganda, which is frightening as hell. So powerful during World War I in terms of American involvement in the war. Yeah. And I'm sure, you no, know, as he's inventing advertising, people are like, how bad could this be? The sauce is delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Eight out of ten doctors agree. (laughs) (laughs) When you can turn a desire back into an appetite, then people don't look at their acquisition of things as being a consumer, but rather like, well, I gots to eat, so okay. And the fact that their desire has been recast back into an appetite, I think, Lee, as you put it, it's an attempt to short circuit any kind of reflective process because it's an attempt to take out that cognitive component from the desire. It's also an attempt, I think, to remove the agent from their own participation in the constitution of themselves as subjects of desire. Because if you're just an appetitive subject, then there's not a lot of agency in that. It's like, this is a body and this is what it does. But to be a subject of desire, there has to be some agency in that, it seems to me. There's a real danger of that, depending on your position, if we're talking about productive process. I just taught my students this great essay by the historian Thomas Holt called An Empire Over the Mind. I love it. It's one of my favorite essays. And basically, he's talking about the ways in which in post-emancipation societies in the British West Indies and the American South, the powers that be have to find ways to keep the freed people connected to the system of production, 
How do you keep them on the plantations? How do you fit them into this burgeoning capitalist order? And the way to do that is to teach them type of bourgeois desires through missionaries, through school teachers, through the Little Red Schoolhouse, through the school marm. We have to teach you to want the type of clothes that white people have. We have to teach you to want to have the type of utensils and manufactured goods that white people have. Because without that, there's a different conception of freedom. There's a different conception of desire that leads them away from participating within that system. That's interesting. That went in a totally different direction than I was thinking that you were going to go. I mean, what you just said is really fascinating. And by the way, listeners, we'll put the link to that essay in the show notes. But I thought you were going to say that one way to subjectify a people is to convince them that there are certain desires that don't belong to them, right? Like the desire to read, for example. Mm-hmm. Like you're not the kind of person who should read or, you know, so it becomes this whole like myth of the metals thing all over again. But again, the myth of the metals, right, is about turning desires into appetites again. You know, it's like, this is just how you're built, right? right? This is how nature made you. So these desires aren't yours. And I think that we can see a lot of that in pre-emancipation societies as well, trying to limit subjects by not talking about them as desiring subjects, but as entirely appetitive subjects. No, I'm glad you brought that up because that's what makes this regime of desire so powerful, that it can flip that switch literally over the course of four years in both British and American emancipation. We go from teaching you, no, 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 you're at the lowest level of human beings, childlike, you're not an animal, but you're kind of a clever animal, you know, so you don't want this. You don't want to read. You don't want this idea of a family structure, any of the social organization that you see the dominant classes have. 1865 or 1838 for the British West Indies. No, 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 you want to be a patriarch within a family structure. No, 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 this communal thing where you have extended families and fictive kin, no, no, you don't want that. You want to reduce it down to these four people So you can work harder to provide for them and invest Mm. money and save and become this idea of what we think a human being is or a a consumptive, appetitive human being that this new capitalist order is asserting. But there again, within the new capitalist order or the new assertion of the capitalist order, while there's this attempt to direct and regulate desire – desire as such is always dangerous. And it's the very desire that you're encouraging that eventually leads to people saying, you know what? We need to have an eight-hour workday. Right. You know what? Mm -hmm. We need to own the Mm -hmm. modes and means of production. You know what? I should be voting. Yeah. And so that's the danger inherent in desire is that, as we talked about already in the first segment, it's this sort of oomph. It puts the energy into our activity But once that energy is put into the system, it's pretty much out of control, which then goes back to, is there also a dangerous side to liberating the human as desiring subject? Are there some desires that we want to say that's immoral just as a desire? Even if you never act on it, just having the desire is immoral. I don't know. Maybe all desires are fine. I don't know that I, this, I I was not, I didn't, apparently I'm just getting hit wide curveballs all over the place because I did not think that this question was what was coming out of that lead up. See, the lack of schematization, that's what happens, chaos. See, if you guys would just provide me a schematic at the beginning, I would be fine. No, but just to get to Rick's question, my immediate impulse is to say that no, I don't think that desires, qua desires, are moral or immoral that you have to act on it or fail to act on it for that to be moral or immoral. 
But I also now when I'm saying that, I'm thinking that's because I'm thinking of desires as appetite. So, okay, let me just pick the most obvious example, the, the sexual attraction to children. I think the reason that most of us say that you should not do that has to do with complicated social contract arrangements that we have that have to do with consent and have to do with vulnerability, et cetera. And I would say that adults should not, you know, ought not have (laughs) sex with children, but I'm not sure that I would say that the desire all by itself is immoral. But I think that's because I believe that the desire is more like an appetite. And even after one becomes aware of it, and it is a desire, like at which point one can seek to satisfy that desire or try to quelch the satisfaction of that desire, that seems to me to be a moral or immoral project. But I'm not sure people can help who they're attracted to. Yeah, I have a colleague, Peter Steves, who has written a lot on the ethics of eating, or I should say the immorality of eating animals. And in talks he would give, he would pass around fake meat. And in those days, it wasn't even... Like now, I've never had an Impossible Burger or any of these new meat substitutes. No, they're delicious. They really right. are. And, and, and it seems like they're closer to the taste and texture of meat mm-hmm. than like an old Morningstar Farms, you know. But he would hand out vegetarian hot dogs. And part of what he was trying to investigate there or have the audience think about is, is my desire for animal flesh in itself the problem? Or is it okay to desire animal flesh as long as I could satiate that desire in some other way? But then secondly, it's really interesting because if desire just isn't appetite, so that there is always a thought component and it might be therefore always capable of some reflection, there is a way in which the desire itself is pleasurable even without the action that would appear to satisfy the desire. I could put this another way. Like, I think any therapist would tell you that whatever desires you have, you don't have to ask your partner to enact all of them or even any of them. And that doesn't mean the desires are bad. That means that they're yours and you don't necessarily need to involve other people in it. So there is a way in which I lean sort of on the side of you desire what you desire, and then the morality or immorality comes in in what you do. Yeah, the heart wants what it wants. I'm certainly closer to desires as being, in most cases, appetites. And, you know, this is who you are. The question becomes, what does it look like if one begins to try to activate that in the social realm? Mm -hmm. Then for me, those are the real questions that have to be asked. And, you know, this is where we have to start talking about how do things get regulated in certain ways. But we are who we are. And I I think I'll go to my grave believing that. But isn't it the case that as maybe not in continental philosophy, but even in continental philosophy, as philosophy becomes more and more enamored of and centered around cognitive neuroscience, aren't we going to eventually end up at the position that desires are just appetites? That is, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just biological stimulus response situation. And then there will be no distinction between appetite and desire. Yes, but here's what scares me about that, that once it gets to that point, there's someone who's going to begin to suggest, well, if this is a physiological, this is a neurological issue, can we correct it? That's what scares me. 
what mm-hmm. becomes the way to resolve what gets seen as, despite the fact it's not affected within a social realm at all, there's no acting upon or enacting or physically satisfying whatever the desire may be. Someone's going to say, just you having that thought, period, demands that we resolve this. And then let's yeah. begin to probe into how do we fix you? Mm. Well, I could definitely imagine scenarios in which that would not be a problematic response, because I think maybe I disagree with what Rick said earlier, which is that desires, even unsatisfied, are themselves pleasurable, because I definitely think that a frustrated desire is a painful experience. It can be a deeply unpleasurable experience to have a desire that is unsatiated or unsatisfied. And so I can imagine that if one had a, we'll just say, antisocial compulsive desire, that there would be good reasons to, if we could, medically or therapeutically change that or suppress it, there would be good reasons to do that, to spare the person the suffering of Mm. desiring something that can never be satiated. Mm. But it seems to me that then you move into the realm of sickness, And I agree, an unfulfilled desire, that's an itch that you don't want to have to live with unscratched, no doubt. But Mm -hmm. I worry in a very real way in terms of how that language of sickness, of damage, when helping you spreads and becomes contagious and moves into other ways and other realms. And then you begin to think about, well, well, what is the ideal person that we want to have and how do we begin to move toward creating that type of person? I mean, maybe that's just me being Saturday morning coming down paranoid. No, I mean, first of all, I want to say I can definitely see very problematic ways in which that can move. But I think if we're all stipulating that some desires are going to be turned into appetites, by which we mean that we're going to have a fully biological explanation for them, then we are talking about, at that point, sicknesses. You know, right before I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, I was constantly thirsty. Mm. Like, I could just drink a gallon of water or anything, Coke. Any, like, of course, Coke was just making it worse, but like, whatever, you know, but anything. And I thought, this is weird. Like, I just am desiring to drink all the time. But it, it was an actual physical sickness that had an actual physical remedy. And so in that sense, like, I was misunderstanding it as a desire when, in fact, it was just an appetite. That appetite was a symptom of an illness. So just to go back, Lee, I agree with you uh, 100% that there are some desires that when they are not satiated, there is pain involved. But there are some desires that just having the desire is itself pleasurable. So, yeah, I didn't mean to make a a blanket statement about all desires. But when Charles was talking, what came to my mind immediately was the famous discussion of the natural slave in Aristotle, where that is a cure for what one could say is a sickness, right? That it is better for the slave to be a slave than not, because they are incapable of behaving as a regular human should behave. And so it's good for them. And so there's also a kind of sickness that it's not so easy to know where the line ought to be drawn between give the diabetic insulin and remove the sociopathic gene or lesion or whatever would turn out to be the biological cause of it. Or send the queer kid to a conversion camp. Or send the queer kid to a conversion camp. Exactly. That's where I was thinking in terms of the ways in which this discourse can get harnessed to serve very, very discriminatory agendas. Yeah, we don't have to look to the future for that. No, 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 (laughs) no, that's for sure. (laughs) 
So I want to ask a question that might kind of go back to our discussion in the first segment about Plato and Aristotle and others saying that we always actually desire the truth, Mm. the good, the beautiful, Mm. etc., Because as I said then, and I do think it's true, for the next 800 to 1,000 years, then the project of philosophy and many of the Abrahamic religions was to just correct you about your desires, (laughs) right? To like let you know where your desires were wrong. You're doing it wrong. You shouldn't be doing that at all. (laughs) (laughs) And even though I know you guys were making fun of me, it is true that I do like things when they're schematized. And I do find that to be a very useful schematic Mm -hmm. to say when I'm trying to explain why people do bad things, why people love ugly things, Mm -hmm. is that they've made a mistake about what they really desire. People who, for example, believe in conspiracy theories, I think they really do want to know the truth. And they've made a mistake about what is true. And so I'm a little concerned that I'm falling prey to the same kind of like very capital T typical philosopher approach to this when I say, well, we just need to correct people in their misunderstandings about desires. So I wonder if you guys think that desires are too, if they're too messy to be schematized, they're too messy to be philosophized about in a way that's useful. You know, I don't often, I almost never talk about desires in my classroom or in my work. And if I was being totally honest about why, it's just like the juice ain't worth the squeeze there. Mm. Right? Mm. Like, you know, it's just, it just it makes things messier and not clearer. Yeah. I don't talk about desire in my classes, even when it comes up in text. Although, <laughs> just, it's just like silence. All right. <laughs> All right. So we're going to be skipping from page 57 to page 60. He said, hands out totally redacted. <laughs> <laughs> If you want to know what's in those three pages, then you're sinning, and that makes your parents (laughs) sad. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. So the only exception is when I teach Augustine's Confessions, because for me, that is a text. It opens with desire, and I think it's about the appropriate desire and therefore the regulation of desire. That his problem throughout the text is that he's putting his desire in all the wrong places. And then finally, when he finds God, then his desire is now for the right thing and it's appropriate and so on. So I don't talk about desire in my classes. And partly it's because, you know, this may sound strange because I'm incredibly suspicious of the power of critical thinking, but I am incredibly Mm -hmm. optimistic about the ways in which reason and rationality could be deployed aspirationally. I prefer to think about a society that is closer to reason than one that is closer to desire. So like you all seem to have no problem with the society in which everyone's getting busy with it in the streets. But in a thoughtful way. It's schematized, Lee. Is that what you're saying? Spreadsheets. (laughs) This is impure. (laughs) It's schematized. Right. This is impure. There's a a schedule. I mean. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I don't talk about it in my classes often. That being said, I think it is a crucial problem in thinking politics. And then I think, you know, Lee, you mentioned earlier Judith Butler. I think that 
as philosophers come to realize the absolute necessity for us to think about genders and gender structures, about race and racialized structures, I think desire will become an important aspect in all of those discussions, even with all of its messiness. Do you think that it's gaslighting to tell someone that they're wrong about their desires? I think for me, or they're it mistaken about their desires. Would be I should more say. judicious to say to people, "Have you considered the logical result of your desire? Have you thought about what that desire means in certain contexts?" But the desire, mm -hmm. in and of itself, I can't judge. I won't judge because, once again, for me, that can lead to very dangerous water in terms of mm -hmm. how we're dealing with regulating circumscribing all of these other forms of control. Ooh, I got Alf Coley in there. But these forms of control that get imposed upon human beings. So then would one or both of you say that desires are value neutral? Well, so I was going to go in a slightly, I mean, come off from Charles where I thought he was going to go. And that is that I think there is nothing wrong with my being told that I might not have my desires were society constituted in a different way. If you think about, for example, the sexualization of young women in American society today that is used for the purpose of sales, it's used for the purpose of promotion and so on, I don't think it's wrong to say to someone who desires young women to say, you know, if society were constituted in a different way, you wouldn't have this desire. This desire wouldn't even arise or emerge, which is not to say that I'm mistaken. Well, maybe it is to say I am mistaken about my desire if I desire something that is the result of the present constitution of society. That I think there's no problem with. Let's say, yes, appetites exist inherently so. They're just a part of our construction, our constitution as material beings. Is there inherent desire or is desire always something that we receive and then is stoked planted in us and then it drives us to move toward the thing that initiated this whole process. I mean, I'd almost be tempted to say that there are no desires that are not socially constructed because I'm just thinking like if there was a lone human being on an island by theirself, I would say that that being has appetites but not desires. I'm not so sure I agree with that. I'm not so sure I disagree. I just... I desire you to choose one or the other of those. <laughs> My appetite is that you... <laughs> I have a hunger for you to choose one or the other of those. <laughs> <laughs> I have a drive. Because in a way, I'm afraid that to say I have no desires, it would be tantamount to say that raised alone, I am just pure animal. Non-human animal. Non-human animal. I don't think that I would say that it is not true that non-human animals have desires in the way that we're talking about human animals having desires if those non-human animals are also socialized. Right. I'm saying that desires, that the consciousness of an appetite, again, going back to Spinoza, which separates an appetite from a mere compulsion, whether that compulsion is biological or of some other sort, that categorize it as a desire. It has to be a being in a social arrangement. Let me try to put this in different language. It seems to me that one thing that's essential to desires and that also separates them from appetites is that they belong to a larger project. Unlike an appetite, which is only about satisfying itself, it seems like a desire is embedded in a web of a much larger project of a subject being a subject. And I don't think there is a subject is a subject outside of its social construction. So I don't think that a human being on an island by themselves, I don't know that I would call that 
person a subject. Oh, okay, you've convinced me through that route because I okay. I agree that there is no independent construction of his subject outside of society for sure, and therefore, if desire belongs to a human insofar as they are the subject of projects, I like that way of putting it as well, then there is no desire outside of society. I was just trying to think my way through, like, I often think that the two basic questions humans ask when they meet something other than themselves, object, animal, other human, and so on, is, can I eat it? And can I fuck it? <laughs> oh, really? Right. Kill me. Well, yeah. <laughs> but but I might I might do try one of the two first. <laughs> and actually, the third question that's embedded in the first two. If I eat it, will it kill me? If I fuck it, will it kill me? <laughs> right. And in that sense, I could imagine that then I would enjoy eating some things more than others, and enjoy screwing some things more than others. And then, therefore, would a desire not develop? But I'm not going to quibble over that. It would still remain at the level of appetite. But I could imagine that the memory of pleasure is the origin of desire. This is the part of the podcast where we normally insert a promotion for our Patreon page. And I'm going to do that again now by reminding you that if you visit patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions, you will find several different levels of patronage that you can subscribe to, all of which help us keep this podcast going. But this week, we also want to highlight the fact that every single one of our Patreon support levels includes exclusive access to hotel bar sessions, bonus content. As it turns out, the episode you're listening to right now was a much longer conversation that we couldn't fit into our usual podcast hour. So if you'd like to hear the rest of our conversation about desire, which includes a fascinating and slightly contentious discussion about whether or not desire could be social or collective, then you should definitely subscribe to Hotel Bar Sessions on Patreon at patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. Now, back to our conversation. All right, you guys, as much fun as this has been, I had a little sidebar with Noelle, and she desires for us to leave. (laughs) So (laughs) while she's giving us last call and grabbing our last drinks, do either of you guys have any final thoughts? Um, I'm going to come to you first, Charles. Yeah, I was thinking about the ideas that we have about to what degree desires get folded into appetites. And I think there's something to be said about populations that are manipulated and beaten into perceiving the world in a certain way. But I think there's something to be said about populations who have been subject to a way of thinking about and experiencing the world for so long that the desire is truly instinctual and does not need that type of external manipulation anymore. And my examples would be certain types and expressions of white supremacy in the United States, certain forms and expressions of anti-Semitism. No one has to tell you to behave toward black people or to Jewish populations this way. It's already there. It's a part of you. It's a part of your appetitive nature. 
Mm. Yeah, I think that part of the reason why I wanted us to talk about desire was, as Lee put it at a certain point, I think it's an inherently sloppy category or concept. It resists a certain kind of schematization, and that's what makes it, I think, interesting. It might be impossible to philosophize about, and yet I want to hold two positions at the same time. Desire ought to be liberated. The liberation of desire is terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Cosine. (laughs) And that's what I find so interesting about it. Yeah, I agree with you both. I suppose maybe one thing as a final thought is, I think we kind of dipped our toes in these waters in one of the segments, but I will be thinking more about the interaction between desire and ideology. Mm. I think that this discussion about how capitalism comes both to shape and inform our desire desires, but also in many ways to revert our desires back to appetites is something that's really provocative for me. And I'm going to be thinking more about that. All right. So I'm going to call. Oh, wait, hold on. Uh, Noelle told me that she's already called us a cab. So you guys, you guys need to turn those bottles up. We are getting kicked out. All right. (laughs) Good night, Noelle. Good night, y'all. All All right. Good y'all. Shotgun. Oh, you asshole! You asshole! <laughs> <laughs>